If you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, that would be great. We're getting to the end of our study in Romans. Actually, our study in Romans has taken four years, so we're at the end of the fourth study in Romans. Uh, We've kind of been doing it in digestible sizes. We find ourselves at the end of the end. And in a pretty unusual uh, chapter... Next week, we, we pick up in Exodus. We've been working through Exodus as well throughout the past several years. And so we're going to pick up at the mountain of God and uh, begin to work through the, the Ten Commandments and the meaning behind all of that. And actually, Pastor Terry will be leading us uh, through the front half of that. I'm uh, going to be away the next several weeks with uh, my son on a, on a missions trip. So excited about that. Before I read the 16th chapter, what I'd like to do is share with you uh, some background about what was Rome like during uh, the time that this letter was written, during the time when the church was getting off its, uh, getting up on its feet. Um, because what you're going to see is, is the 16th chapter is unlike almost any other chapter in the Bible in how personal it is and contextual it is. So I'd like us to know a little bit about the city and the culture. Therefore, we can see in the 16th chapter the counterculture that's existing inside the church. So that said, uh, Roman culture was uh, broadly defined by uh, probably two, maybe others, but of, the, of how it's defined, there's two really large concepts. One is the concept of being a Roman citizen, a citizen of Rome. It was a big deal. If you were a, a citizen of Rome, you were on top of the world as far as rights and privileges go. There's a point in the book of Acts where Paul's arrested and he's being manhandled by the Roman soldiers and he drops a phrase like this. He goes, is this how you treat a Roman citizen? And when he does that, it's sort of like you can hear the record, the needle go off the record. All of a sudden, these guys who are being sort of bullish with him are now nervous that they're in trouble because he's a Roman citizen. And one of the soldiers remarks, he says, I had to buy my citizenship. And Paul says, I was born this way. Like, <laughs> matters. It matters. So in Rome, in the city of Rome or in the Roman Empire, you had the Roman citizen, and then you had someone who may not have had to have been a citizen, but they were free-born. They were born free. Then you had people who had bought their freedom, and then you had slaves. And free-born or freed men were sort of a category of their own. I mean, they could potentially attain citizenship, but slaves themselves should be thought of as a unique category. Slaves were humans, but they were not people in Roman culture. They were humans. In other words, they were human beings, but they were not people in the sense of culture did not recognize that they had hopes and dreams. They did not have property. They did not have belonging. They didn't have marriage. They might have given birth to another human, but it was not their child. They were, in the legal realm, property. A master could abuse or even take the life of a slave at his discretion. It was his use of his property. 
Now, in, uh, uh, there were some norms in Roman culture uh, that make it a little bit different than the kind of slavery that's part of uh, our American heritage. In Rome, slavery did not have a specific ethnic link. Those people were not slaves and those people were not citizens. You could actually move in your lifetime from the role, uh, from the position of Roman citizen to the position of slave through bad choices and misfortune. You could lose your personhood. Likewise, it was customary among many, uh, in many households that as slaves served their masters, their masters were expected to set aside a certain amount of finances which would contribute towards them buying their freedom after a tenure of service. So in a good home, in a good household, uh, where slavery still existed, there was a, an expected progression of the slaves towards becoming freed persons. And they, in that sense, they would gain their personhood. But as long as they're a slave, they're not a person. That's how it existed in Roman culture. The other significant influence in the culture was uh, the male-dominated nature of Roman culture. So uh, it was male-ordered and male-dominated. The positions of husband, father, and master were very significant positions. And... uh, were fairly absolute. The in a home, in a household, the wife's job was one of the expectations in their culture was to see to the proper worship of the household, the work of religion. But it was that work of religion was done towards the god or goddess that the the husband had named as this is the one to whom we direct our homage. That was pretty commonly the case. Slaves had sex but did not have gender. So you could be a technically a male or female slave, but that did not make you a man or a woman because you're not a person. You have no personhood. You're a slave. Um, And so a lot of the gender expectations that the Roman culture had for themselves did not extend to slaves. Um, In the Roman culture, there was a strong honor-shame culture. And so the man was defined by the honor of his reputation and what he could accomplish and gain. His identity was anchored not in himself, not really that much even in a god. His, His identity was anchored and the reputation conferred to him by his peers. The woman in the culture did not participate in the honor-shame culture the same way. She did not seek honor. She sought to mitigate or diminish shame towards her husband. So they were an honor-shame team. Her role was shame management. Okay, so... If there was going to be a big festival at their household, her job was to make sure it went well. If it went great, he got credit. His honor went up, right? 
if it didn't go well, she brought shame to the house. That is the nature of uh, Roman culture. Slaves did not participate in that because they're not persons. They're not people. There was no, there's no honor-shame culture among slaves. All through, and we have tons of data from Rome, a lot of information. Uh, many, many of the writings of Rome, from the plays, the comics, to the graffiti uh, that we find in Roman cities, uh, refer to slaves as uh, lazy thieves. Why? Because they were not part of any sort of culture, cultural expectation of doing well. And you find, I mean, it's enough, it's, a, it's said enough that you, it's pretty able to appreciate that it's normative, it's a normative thought in the culture. This is even when you read in Scripture, when Peter or Paul are speaking to slaves inside the fellowship, so Roman slaves uh, who are in the Christian church, the instruction to them is, hey, before your masters work well, regardless of whether they're a good master or not, work well and be sincere in your work as though you're working to the Lord because we, you, do have something to be honored about. You are a person and your work matters. So human dignity is being breathed into the slaves through the church, not through the culture. That's Rome, okay? Much more could be said, I'm sure. But for the sake of kind of taking off into this, uh, this chapter today, that's enough, I think, of a picture of Rome for you to appreciate how the church is not the same. Very different. And uh, I'm grateful for that. Let's begin in the 16th chapter. We're going to look at the first two verses. They're a little bit unique. They're part of what's called a commendation. The letter is being commended to the church. Verse 1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, a lot is actually said here about Phoebe. Phoebe is a woman, obviously. It says she's a sister, she's a servant of the church, she's a patron. A patron is a benefactor. She's probably a prominent, uh, from a prominent family, a person of means, and she has used her means to assist people like Paul in the work of ministry. That's what's being expressed here. And uh, what would happen back in this day, they didn't have a hotel industry that like you and I understand. When you and I travel to various places, we do not depend on a relational connection at the other end. Now, sometimes it may happen. Sometimes that's the reason we're traveling. But if, if you're going to go on business to Berlin, it's not important to you that you have a family waiting to receive you there because you have a holiday inn or a dare holiday inn right, whatever the German version would be. You have that uh, place. In Roman culture, they did, or in the, Greek, in the Mediterranean ancient Near East, they didn't have hotels. You didn't get off on exit four for the hotels. You just didn't have that. So when you were traveling, it was very important, particularly within the church, if you wanted to stay within the fellowship of believers, we find this very commonly in letters, commendations. In other words, you come bearing a letter, and that letter commends you to the fellowship and they care for you. And apparently here, Phoebe's coming to Rome. She has some needs. 
And, and so Paul's commending her to them to re- receive Phoebe as a sister in Christ because she's our sister. She serves the Lord well. And she's, been a, she's helped many in the faith. So help her. That's what's being said there. I think it's fair to suspect that Phoebe herself carried the letter of Romans to the church in Rome, which is an interesting thought, that she might have delivered that letter. And there is a few interesting things here. The word servant, some of your Bibles might even translate that deacon. In other words, it might read, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. And the reason for that is because the word for deacon and the word for servant is the same word. We are dependent upon context to know how to translate it. Actually, when we use the word deacon, we're choosing not to translate the word out of the Greek. We're kind of rounding it off to make it sound right. But it's still, essentially, it's Greek spelling. Or at least it's Greek sounding. And when we think we know it means servant, we use the word servant instead of deacon, but it's the same word. It's, it's, it, it, you, if you turn the page back, uh, Romans 15.8 is another use of the word uh, deacon. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Right? Well, we know he didn't become a deacon to the circumcised, so we translate servant. But, uh, but some in the church will view this as, as, I mean, the question will arise, is Phoebe, is Phoebe a deacon? It's unknowable uh, from this text alone. The Bible has other things to say about deacons, but this text is, makes no argument. It's, it's the passing word. From the spirit, as we go on to read, and I think you'll see this, from the spirit of the chapter, my reflex is that he's, his meaning is servant here um, because there's no real reference to rank or title in the whole chapter. In fact, Paul is going to gravitate uh, to the service and the work of the church throughout the chapter. But even then, that's, that's my conjecture. Regardless, what's worth noting is how prominent Phoebe is to Paul. Here's a, a woman who has been very prominently serving in his life and helping him out, and he takes his time to commend her to the church to care for her. And it's, most would think that she's borne the letter to the Romans. Okay, let's pick up in verse 3. This is the section of greetings. So Phoebe's commended, and now, he's, now Paul is greeting people in the church. Let me just read 3 through 5. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their very necks for my life, to whom not only I give them thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now, the names sound a little different, uh, but you might know this couple. You might know them by a different name. Anybody have a thought? Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, this is Priscilla and Aquila, okay? We learn about them in the book of Acts, the 18th chapter of Acts. Uh, Anybody know the husband? It's Aquila, not Priscilla. It's worth noting that Paul would lead off with the wife's name. Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, uh, it's three times, by the way, in Scripture, Priscilla precedes Aquila. 
they were tent makers by trade. They were Romans. They lived in Rome. We know all of this from the 18th chapter of Acts. Uh, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome in AD 49. We know that from Scripture, and we know that from Roman history. He said to the Jews, you got to get out. And that forced Priscilla and Aquila to travel, and they traveled to Corinth, and were setting up their tent-making business there at the same time that Paul the Apostle was in Corinth, making his living as a tent-maker, okay? So he moves in with Priscilla and Aquila. We don't know whether they were in the Lord or not. All we know is a few years later when Paul decides to do ministry in Ephesus, they go with Paul and they minister with him. I would love someone to do a movie about this because it sounds like Paul moved in thinking to make tents and instead made Christians. And when he goes to Ephesus, they go and they turn out to be awesome ministers for the Lord. So much so that the, they, they, this is where you get the phrase, you, I put my neck out for you, right? It's right here. It's in the Greek. Man, they, probably they, along the way, they've risked their, their neck for Paul, as he says, and the Gentile churches, that's the churches among the Greek peoples, they're grateful for Priscilla. They've gained some level of respect and prominence. And now, Emperor Claudius is dead, Priscilla and Aquila are back home in Rome, and we find that they're back home in Rome doing what? Doing ministry. There's a whole church, a whole gathering that meets in their home. A, a Roman home, and by the way, I'm giving you data, but it's not about data. I just want to offer you a picture, and hopefully we can pull, we can glean from the data some bigger ideas. But a Roman home, a, a well-established Roman home, was a house, and in front of the house was a large cobblestone atrium with a lot of like booths around it, shops. The citizens, the household owners, they did their business in the front of their home. If you made tents or dyed cloth or jewelry or corn or whatever it is, you would sell your wares in this front square in your home. And so it was a very suitable place for churches to meet. It could hold maybe up to 80 people in that area there for fellowship. And then the home itself was behind that. And so Priscilla and Aquila lead a fellowship, uh, or a fellowship meets in their house. Okay, let's go to the next one here. We won't be as long. We don't know as much about a lot of the others. The second half of verse 5 says, Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Now, in the Roman times, the capital of Asia is Ephesus. So we don't really know anything about Eponidas. His placement right alongside Priscilla and Aquila makes me wonder if he was a convert that came through their ministry because they were ministering in Ephesus. But we, we really don't know much there. Verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Mary is most typically a Hebrew name a name for Jews. We do find it in the Greek record, but not as often. So chances are she was a Jew. And there's this phrase, she's worked hard for you. Now, it's not, there's nothing here that's unique to her, but I want to I wanna push it forward right now. Uh, thus far, Paul said, greet Phoebe, she's a fellow servant. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, they're fellow workers. And greet Mary, she's worked really hard for us. You hear that? 
As we go, I want you to continue to listen to what Paul seems to care about or how he seems to connect or better yet, the nature of the greeted church. When Paul's greeting the church, how does he choose to relate to them? Okay? Verse 7. This is another really interesting one. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Okay. First of all, we think Junius is a woman. We think it's a husband and wife. We don't know, though. The word, the name there, the way it's being used, it could be like two male missionaries, but I think... I fall on the side of it's a husband and wife team. Um, They are kinsmen. That doesn't necessarily mean relatives. It means they're Jews. So even if Mary's not a Jew, certainly Andronicus and Junius are. They're Jews. And it says something. It says they were in Christ Jesus before Paul was. Their conversion predates Paul. Their ministry predates Paul. And what you find is they are, They serve the same way as Paul. They suffer the same way as Paul. And they've been doing it longer than Paul. And they're respected by uh, the way it's it's written here, and you'll find a few variations, but they're very well respected among the apostles. Or it might even be, that apostles might not be with a big A. It might be, uh, they're very well respected missionaries. I think the best way to think of Andronicus and Junius is this is a missionary couple that is doing the work that Paul's been doing with great success and has, has earned the respect of the church. And they've suffered like Paul and they've served like Paul. And you and I know almost nothing about them. Almost nothing. I want to just stop here and pull out two things thus far in the reading. The first thing I want to pull out is the church of Jesus Christ has grown through the labor of people we know nothing about, through a lot of really unimportant people doing God's work in a really special way. The church of Jesus Christ has not, hear me when I mean mean this the right way, it didn't grow solely on the backs of Paul, Peter, James, and John. They had an apostolic role which is to give the right teaching of Christ to the world. But that right teaching has been carried on the backs of many, many wonderful, nameless families and people all throughout the world. And that's how the church has grown. The church has grown, in other words, through almost anonymous servants of the Lord, which should bless us. And what should bless us is the nature of the greeted church, in my mind, Paul You don't see him reaching to the church calling out elders and pastors or calling out, I don't think, the deacons of the church, even if Phoebe's a deacon. She's not a deacon of Rome. He's not calling out any of the rank and file of the church. He's calling out the servants of the church, those doing the work of the church. That's the first thing I see. And it contrasts, it contrasts pretty starkly with The nature of his greetings contrasts with maybe the Western notion that the epicenter of church is the Sunday morning worship service. 
you know, I know, I know here they met and they worshiped on Sunday, so I'm not saying we ought not to be doing this. I'm, I'm saying the nature of the greeted church seems to be around their labor in Christ, their work for the Lord. Last week we talked about how uh, Paul was proud of his work in Christ and how we do want to be able to look back. There's some part of me that, in a really good way, would far rather be known for my labor in the Lord than rank and title. Here's the other thing that we have to notice, I think, by this point. And we're only a few verses in, right? Seven verses in. Four of the seven names that have been given to us by this point are women. In the greeting section, half, half thus far are women. By the time we're done, nine of the 26 names will be women. Nine of the 26. Do you remember what I said about Roman culture? And the relative importance of women versus men or the relative unimportance of women versus men, how what really mattered was the honor of the man, it just does not accord with the way that Paul is greeting. He's not behaving like a Roman. He's behaving like a Christian. That for him, he sees people as valuable People are people in the Lord, and he sees them, and, he's, and he's, he's his personal, I mean, the fact that half of the top, the A-list at the top of the greetings are women is striking. And this, by the way, is coming from the New Testament lightning rod for biblical chauvinism. I mean, Paul gets the rap in the Bible for being that guy. It's, it's Paul's writings and other areas of Scripture that are careful with how, how, how do men and women, you know, do church together. But, man, I think we would really miss the heart of his ministry and of his intent if we did not observe the mood of love that shows up in this chapter and the value he has. Somewhere in every organism or every organization, there's, there's the question of positions and titles. You know, right now to Paul, it doesn't seem that important. You know, and no organization, even with the best structure, survives if the members are not valued. Let's keep going. Verses 8. Let's look at 8. Greet Ampliatus. And I don't know if I have these names right, by the way. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. That's a slave name. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. That's a slave name. And my beloved Stachys. We know nothing about that name. (laughs) Verse 10. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. We don't know anything about Apellus. The approved is a little unusual. He's approved in Christ. I've even wondered, is, is Apellus a deacon? Because in First Timothy, it says if someone's going to serve as deacons, they have to be tested. And is this code? Is, is this Paul choosing to refer to a deacon but not call him a deacon? I don't know. I don't know that, and I wouldn't teach it. I'm wondering it. 
But later on in the 10th verse, we get something really interesting here. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Now, I know that doesn't sound interesting to you, okay? It gets better, though. Greet my kinsman Herodian, you see? Did that get interesting? Just kidding. Keep going. One more time here. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of a Narcissus. Now it's interesting. Not really. Uh, But here's the deal. In in this Roman time, okay, notice, by the way, he did not greet Aristobulus, nor did he greet Narcissus. He greeted people in their house, okay? So nobody here is saying that Aristobulus and Narcissus are in the church. We do know for a fact that under Emperor Claudius, he had a very close friend named Aristobulus, who was also the brother of Herod Agrippa. Now, maybe there's another Aristobulus that's being talked about, right? Rome's a big city. But the fact that he would follow, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus with, greet also my kinsman Herodian, is striking. Because Herodian is not a Greek name, and it's not a Roman name. It's not really even a Jewish name. It's a Herodian name. You're from the Herodian family if you're using that name. So it's, there's a fair amount of, there's a pretty good scholarly hunch that this Aristobulus is Claudius' man. In other words, Paul is greeting people who are in very prominent positions in Rome. And Narcissus was another one of Claudius' men. So when you have this combination of, well, that checks and that checks and that checks, I mean, you have three data points in a row of prominent people who worked closely or were friends of Emperor Claudius. And Paul's putting them all together, packaging them all nicely, and he's not, re- he's not referring to them themselves. In fact, by this point, Aristobulus died earlier in the year that this letter was written. But it's people in his household, it's, it's quite possible that there were some very prominent believers that had ascended or found themselves in conversion in pretty high places in Roman culture. Now, I find that interesting, and I find it particularly interesting because it's come just after Paul has greeted three slaves. I love that. I love it. Greet Ampliotitus, my beloved, slave. Greet Urbanus, my co-worker, slave. And greet those super important people in that house because we're in the same church. Just stop for a second and imagine how wrong this fellowship would have looked to Roman eyes. Remember, slaves are not people. I even wonder if there was so much shame that would have come on the individual believers in the house of Aristobulus and Narcissus that he merely greets the people in the household to protect them. Really good. Touches my heart. Verse 12. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. We think those are sisters. It was kind of a Roman uh, habit of if you had siblings, kind of give them similar names. If you translated it, it would sound like uh, greet, delicate, and dainty. That's their names. Isn't that cool? 
And then Persis, her name would translate uh, Persian girl. So it's three girls here. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who's worked hard in the Lord. You hear that? Those workers in the Lord? It's like Paul's a communist. You know, workers of the world. He's very, very much focused on the work of God. 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. There's a lot to say about Rufus, but I don't think it it bears right here. 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Now, some of those names are slave names. We know that. And it appears as though this is another house church. So Priscilla and Aquila have a house church. It appears as though this is another house church. And in the 15th verse, you get another house church. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Two house churches, and also some more slave names. And greet one another with a holy kiss. That sort of would translate today as take a second to shake hands and say hi to somebody, right? That's what we did. Terry had mad skills this morning. Sewed that in. That's what's happening here. He's saying to them, look at yourselves. Look at yourselves. Look at who you are. Really special. Do you hear the titles that Paul's choosing to use? Not pastor, not reverend, not elder, not bishop. He did not line this list up from wealthiest to poorest. It's not men first, women second. It's not Romans first, Jews second, or Jews first, Romans second. It's not freeborn and then slave. It's all mixed up, like it's scattered in the room. And the titles that he chooses to use are words like co-worker and saint and brother and sister and beloved and acceptable, worker in the Lord. This is the nature of the greeted church. This is the nature of church. This is, this, if we're reconciled with Christ, that reconciliation pushes out with our brothers and sisters in this world, right? It says that Christ has removed the barrier of hostility that was once between us and now has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That's what it says. I don't believe that the church is about a pursuit for diversity. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't, nor do I think that we have to adopt necessarily the categories that the outside world is saying, you need more of that there. I, I don't necessarily, we, are, we serve God only. I will say this. I do think we should be alarmed by homogeneity. I do think that the reconciliation of Christ beckons people into our fellowship that are outsiders. And it makes us look countercultural. It might even make us look very unattractive to eyes that are perishing and beautiful to eyes that are looking for God. 
people might believe that they might find reconciliation with a God who's created that kind of reconciliation among men. People might believe they might find reconciliation in their marriage if God can do that kind of reconciliation in the fellowship. In Galatians, Paul says this, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor is there slave nor free, neither is there male nor female, but in Christ we are one. In this church, there's Jew and Greek, male and female, slave, free. I mean, everything's there, but it isn't. You have to research it to know what they are. Uh, Don't we want our church to be a church that meets the warm greeting of the Lord? Which for me would be to say that we would be in a ministry of reconciliation in a lot of really brilliant and wonderful ways because our salvation is more than getting to heaven. It's a ministry of reconciliation. That we would be in the work of God, co-laboring with one another, bringing ourselves to the Lord and the world to ourselves. We can turn, as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, we don't leave this idea. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, this is the passage, by the way, I typically quote 1 Corinthians 11 during our liturgy for the Lord's Supper. It's where I go. But, but Paul is discussing in 1 Corinthians 11 an issue in the fellowship. And the issue is you're making a mockery of the ordinance because you're not reconciled in a loving way with one another. Actually, this very subject we're talking on is the subject in 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul brings them to the Lord's table on. He says, what I find is some of you don't eat and when, so that you, when you get to the Lord's table, you glutton yourselves, right? They would have a larger meal. So he says, you pig out at the meal while some people don't get a chance to eat. And it sounds like you line up like the wealthier people eat first and then all the riffraff Christians get to eat whatever's left over. He says, how does this accord with God? On this matter, I have nothing good to say about you, is what he says. Don't you see the consistency that if you appreciate what God has done for you, you will become nothing so that others might become more. You will give over yourself, you will give over your personhood to give it to someone who doesn't have it. When we come to the Lord's table, we do it as a fellowship. Why? Because it is before the Lord, but we are coming as the reconciled people of God. So my hope and prayer is we come well this morning to the table. That we would greet him well in the Lord's table and that he would greet us. Let's pray, Lord. We are not as we should be in every way on this issue, Lord, we, in small ways, the way we dress or speak, but in large ways, Lord, maybe the people we've avoided inviting because they don't give us honor or they affect our reputation or, ah, Lord, we, I can't even say the complexity that I know to be true about us.
But we are grateful, Lord, that you did not look us over. That you brought personhood to us, beautiful personhood, that you put Christ in us, that you elevated us up, that you speak value into us, and that you use us. We thank you for that, Lord. Father, and we thank you that you do not build your church on rank and position. You build it on joyful co-laboring. Lord, may we, may we please you in the way we try to do this with one another. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.